The date is Friday, April 1st, and you're listening to Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. There are two giants of fantasy books that everyone knows of, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. But what you may not have known is that they were contemporaries and the best of friends. So join us as we explore Middle Earth and Narnia in this enlightening episode, and enjoy! Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to your favorite show on the internet encapsulating all things entertainment. You know what you love it. It's Entertain This. Entertain This. You may find yourself <laughs> listening to a podcast mm. on a train in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife and a beautiful life. Same as it ever was. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I got a fresh I got a fresh opening for you, a fresh cold opening. It's cold and ready. Mm. Uh, we got recently nominated for a couple of different categories in the award show known as the Snobby Awards. Woo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> That's all it gets. That's good, guys. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to read out the nominations that we were nominated for. Now, by the time this episode is released, uh, I should mention the award show will have already happened, um, because it is happening on Sunday, March 27th, um... But for people listening live, which you can do if you follow us on our social medias, you'll get to hear it now and you get the chance to watch as we either are completely snuffed because this is a kangaroo court and unfair trial <laughs> or we are victorious because we earned it. It's either one or mm -hmm. the other and it's never both. So let's start with our nominees. We have five of them, which is great. Um, five nominees is huge. The first of those being uh, Podcast of the Year, which is big. Podcast of the Year? Us? Whoa. Little old us? For Podcast of the Year? Really? I don't believe it. Yeah, we're probably not going to win that one. Uh, also <laughs> nominated for Podcasters of the Year, and that's listed as Alex Steele, Nick Mustakangas, Michael Savoya, and Chloe Price. Our show. Wow, our that's all checker. of us. That's all of people, us. Yeah. Nominated for Podcasters of the Year. Do we do I think that we are the podcasters of the year? Frankly, no. But no. <laughs> from the small pool that I see here in front of us, could we be podcasters of the year? I don't see why not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't see the reason why we couldn't be. So I think we might as well be. Yeah, sure. Our next nomination is for host of the year, and that it's me. I'm nominated for that. Yeah, I was gonna say our our next nomination. It's <laughs> no, it's just me. a little bit of collectivism there. Alex. I don't yeah. understand how it could just be me, considering the show has three very equal hosts who all pull the same amount of weight. Uh, so well. if if I win that, I will be doing a Mean Girls style breaking the crown and throwing it to the crowd announcement, where I'm just like, and a piece for you. And you're also queen. That's what I'll do. Um, so the next nomination is best podcast in education or news. <laughs> Are we can, educational? I, we can't say I don't we're think news, any yeah. podcast that has a dedicated fact checker can be educational. I think that the fact that we hired a fact checker makes us educational because huh. maybe the podcast isn't about educating the listeners. It's about educating the hosts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very well could be. And maybe that's the news that we are providing as well is hey, news alert, these three white boys pretend to know everything. Turns out they know nothing. <laughs> Incredible. I like that. 
Uh, our final nominee is Best Interview Show. So I want to give a huge shout out to Mr. Jeff Kenny for being the reason we got nominated for that one and the <laughs> yeah, sole reason. We had some other really great interviews last year, um, but I doubt they listened to them. So shout out to Jeff Kenny for being our best interview and who brought in the most viewers and listeners to our podcast. Everyone go buy his new book. Uh, you'll figure out what it's called when you get to the store to buy it. Great. <laughs> Timothy Kids, something or other. That's probably true. Just buy any of them. I'm sure all the money goes to them. Yeah, support them. Anyways, it's another, it's another Friday, technically. It's not. We record on Wednesdays. But it's another Friday <laughs> it's April for the Fool's listener. Day, you know that? Is it really? <laughs> yeah. Today is? Or the day in which this is Friday, released? April 1st, and you're listening to... April Fools. And then you're going to play Big Chicken Bits because you like that <laughs> podcast better. Yeah. <laughs> be no, a pretty funny April Fools joke on all of us. That would be funny. Well, Just here's the April Fools joke is that we recorded this on March 23rd. <laughs> you so guys April got Fools. Pranked. Dumbass. <laughs> so we got your ass. <laughs> <laughs> but another Friday has come. It is April 1st. But what's not a joke is Michael's prepared us a beautiful banquet of knowledge and information, and I cannot wait wow. to consume it. So please Hi. serve it up on a silver platter, nice and steamy. Give it to me hot, my baby boy. <laughs> hi, it's me, your baby boy, Michael. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Say hi, it again. I, no, it's me, your baby don't, boy, don't. Michael. <laughs> no. And now I'm going to make that my ringtone. Please do. Strictly for, <laughs> when, strictly for when you call. <laughs> oh yeah hey that'd work very well oh. yeah, yeah 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 okay cool hi so we're gonna talk about some cool stuff today guys nice uh, we're gonna be talking about uh one person in particular who's one of my favorite creators of some of my favorite uh fantasy novels probably my favorite PewDiePie. uh piece of media in existence uh as well as his compatriot, who uh, has also created a lot of fantastic, like life-defining literature works. Uh, today's going to be a book book day. Book day, uh, book this day. This is going to be Time my for book report. A book day. We love it. Yeah. You love it. You read it. We write it. It's book day. <laughs> Did you say Booker Day? Booker Day. That's no, that was that was a couple one. episodes ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But no, so today I'm going to be doing like a, a little report for you all on uh, two individuals named J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And we're going to be discovering a little bit about how they shared a friendship together, uh, which informed two of our uh, greatest works of fantasy literature in existence today. Wow. So strap on in. Entertain this. <laughs> Entertain <laughs> this. Am I the only one that gets those two confused? Who? J.R.R. Token and Martin yeah. Scorsese? Yeah. yeah Let's let two. Michael do the talking. He'll explain <laughs> <Okay>. it. <laughs> They're both British so, guys, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both British. They're both... Uh, I thought you said rich, but I think that's also true. Both, yes. Yes, <laughs> both are true. Both are very true. Um, they're both from, uh, like, Oxford, England. Cool. Uh, yeah, so they, I don't think that's originally where they're from, but um, that's where they spent a majority of their lives, particularly because they ended up teaching at the same college, um, Merton College uh, in particular. So fun uh, fact, that's also where the dictionary is from. 
No, that's from Oxford. That's English. right. Oxford. There it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Merriam-Webster, depending on who you ask. So, so let's just start off a little bit by me taking a book out of uh, Nick and Alex's play playbook. Uh, what all do you all know about these two authors, C.S. Lewis and George R. Or not George R. R. Martin, uh, <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien? Jesus, heavy <laughs> it's, into. It's yeah, I'm pretty sure that they were heavy into um, the uh, way of working religion into their stories. I think there's a lot mm. of religious symbolism in both of their books. Um, one of those being, uh, the Narnia series, correct? Yeah. The Lion, the Witch, and the like Wardrobe. The Lion, and the so Witch, on. and the Wardrobe, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And then Lord of the Rings is the other, correct? Yeah. Okay, yep. great. So, I feel like I'm most the way there. But there's a lot of symbolism, <laughs> a lot of religious symbolism in both books. Uh, and I think they both had a pretty heavy Protestant background, which led them to those symbols uh and working the that kind of a story into what they were telling so that's what i know and i feel like that's a pretty good chunk mm. that's pretty good that's pretty good i like it what about you nick um so i already told you i got them too them too confused you kentucky boy <laughs> <laughs> but hey nick your kentucky's showing <laughs> beyond that uh c.s lewis i think <sighs> no the other guy <laughs> who wrote the, the 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 Lord of the Rings, I think he w was um, a medic or something in World War One, and then uh, the 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 Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was written out of uh, based on a true story, I guess, of these children who survived the Blitz in London <clears throat> when the Germans went in there and uh, and bombed it because mm -hmm. they had to hide. They went away for a summer. They went hid in a wardrobe, and then oh look, it's a it's a magical place, but um, that's really where my knowledge of those two ends because I haven't watched the Lord of the Rings films. Well, it's been a while, so I don't remember them. And uh, I think I have seen the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe movie when that came out. Yeah, that came out when we were like, like 11, 12. Yeah. So I know that I went either. on a field trip to go see it. And that was like one of the only field trips that ever took us to like the movies. But they were like, well, the movie's coming out for, you know, Narnia. So we'll read the book to the kids and then we'll go see the movie. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't listen when they read the book, but I paid attention when they played the movie. So <laughs> Same I, I was one of those kids who and this is a generation of children who every time they see a wardrobe, they get inside of it and they start tapping the back wall. I was one of those kids. <laughs> That was nice. a very real thing <laughs> that a lot of kids did in our generation. Yeah. Just in case. You got to check. Just in case, because you never know if it's going to fall through and you're going to get some tasty treats from a nice lady in all white <laughs> who is eventually going to be very, very bad. But first, <laughs> the the beautiful candies. It's like uh, it's like Hansel mm. and Gretel, isn't it? Where she gives yeah, you I mean, back like, little treats. People are like, Hansel and Gretel is all about, you know, like staying, uh, knowing your boundaries and never going outside your comfort zone. It's like, no, it's about self-control. If they had known when to stop and been like, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to go. <laughs> like, it would have been a happy story about kids getting free, like, sweets. And I think the same can be said about Narnia. Hmm. If Edwin would have just been like, I love these Turkish delights. I'm going to eat them all. And then I think I'm going to hop back in that wardrobe and go home. <laughs> then, like, happy story for Edwin, you know? What's a Turkish delight? Does anyone know? It's like a pastry candy thing. It's oh, like okay. a cookie, basically. Like a cookie with jam. I'm done with it. Anyways. Nice. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm hungry. I want dessert. <laughs> Dude, Turkish delights are like one of the main things that people remember from that movie because they look oh, yeah. just delicious. Turkish delights. They're delight. like covered in powdered sugar. Oh, oh my God. Top oh, notch. Nice. So, yeah, you all, you, all, you all got some some good stuff out of there. Uh, there's some <laughs> things that I want to go back and correct, though. We squeezed um, some juices. Yeah, so Alec, <laughs> I think you 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 can, you brought up something that was very important to both of these guys' lives. That, that would be their their religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so praise be, praise be. Uh, <laughs> C.S. Lewis uh, was actually raised in like an Irish Orthodox uh, like Christian home. Uh huh. Um, and but by the time he was like fifteen, he became an, an atheist mm. uh, and remained so for quite a long time. Actually. Um, However, he came to meet uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Tolkien, uh, who was a very, like, very strong Catholic, very strong Catholic man. Catholic. Um, and it's through their friendship that C.S. Lewis actually ended up becoming what would what's called more of like an Anglican uh, like oh, Christian Church of England. Yeah. 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 Um, and the the big thing that came out of this was that like c.s lewis in particular was a very like argumentative person like he he focused not in like a not in like a like i'm going to like argue with you to like prove you wrong but like he needed to like he was always questioning everything hey that's me and that's what yeah and that's what led him down to the path of like atheism Hey, um, there okay. was there was lots of stuff that went on in his life that uh, like he was very angry with God for um, one for like n- not existing, but two simultaneously also creating a world where like things happen so badly, like th- where bad things happen so often. Yeah. And this was also coming at the beginning of World War One, which we picked up on Nick, yep. where he actually was a, he fought in the trenches. Oh shit! Uh, <laughs> yeah, jeez. Yeah, and it wasn't until he uh, they they met together one day uh, in 1926 um, during a faculty meeting where the two became very drawn to each other. Um, they became very fast friends through just talking about their shared experiences and their mutual interest in uh like writing and fantasy um and history in particular um c.s lewis was he was much more focused on the actual like um literature side of things and that was what he taught at um at merton uh however uh tolkien he actually wasn't much of a like literature guy he was much more focused in uh languages mythologies histories and those were the sorts of subjects that he taught um which then you can compare that to the actual works of fiction that they write where c.s lewis is much more of like a traditional like writer where he's coming up with he's basing his stories off of like already known stories his his stuff is like very focused in allegories and has like a very strong connection with a very specific audience in mind in particular the narnia series that is traditionally seen as like more of like a young adult, early teenager, like first chapter book sort of situation. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and it's meant to kind of show the story of um, of Jesus in a way that would be like very easy to comprehend for uh, for young adults. Wait for it, Nick, because Jesus is the lion in this story. <laughs> what? Aslan yeah. is a Jesus figure, my man. Sacrifices yeah. himself. 
Can you remind me what the lion does in these books? Because it's been like, so real, real quick. <laughs> yeah, real, real quick. I'll just do like a quick little, little shallow dive into what each book is. Let's do so, it. So yeah, go ahead. In particular, we're going to be focusing on the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the Lord of the Rings as a whole series. Got it. So the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Master. That is the story about. <laughs> <laughs> that's the story about the, the four kids who um, they find a wardrobe in the back of one of the offices at their guardian's house and they fall through it and through in doing so they end up coming to the land of narnia Mm, um right in that land of narnia uh one of the siblings uh ends up unintentionally aligning himself with the bad guy the edwin gets turkish delights yeah then he gets (laughs) turkish delights um she's the satan figure because yeah, she's using the, temptation. Oh, the, the winter. Yeah. I, I don't remember her like literal name, but I think it's like the winter witch or something. I thought what, it was the white uh, witch. Yeah, it's white. white witch. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so there is this constant feud kind of going on in this land of Narnia between the white witch and the other everyone else, basically, <laughs> who is led by Aslan the lion. Um, hmm. the world is kind of inhabited by like satyrs and centaurs and other mythological creatures. Um, but the focus is primarily on the, the white witch and Aslan. Um, because like basically one can rule and whoever yeah. rules the people, even if they want Aslan, they have to obey the white witch. So yeah. it's like, if Aslan wins, then they can obey Aslan. If the white witch wins, then they have to obey the white witch. But like, it's not like, well, they get way overpower her, So why don't they just take her out? That wasn't the rules of the land. That's why. It <laughs> well, says. the the thing that's really funny about that is like throughout, it, it's like everyone is fighting to make Aslan like the king. Aslan doesn't want to be king. Aslan wants to win so that he can make the kids the kings. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, and that's why, uh, and it's kind of like an allegory for Jesus being this person who's lifted up throughout his whole life, but then sacrifices himself to make everyone all of the children of god inheritors of his kingdom in heaven ah there you go Um, yeah and um that's kind of like so what ends up happening is they get into this big war everyone's fighting aslan realizes that the only way that he can really stop the war from even happening in the first place is if he goes and sacrifices himself um so he goes and he like willingly walks into the the winter witch or the white witch's camp and they perform like a whole ceremony and just straight up just sacrifice them. Damn. Um, yep. Uh, however, after uh, I think one 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 night, I think in the book or I think in the movie, I think it's three nights in the books. Um, That's convenient. Yeah. Sun <laughs> shines upon Aslan's corpse and he is then resurrected to return to the battle which is happening in the midst and completely turns the tides mm-hmm. nice uh, and they win the kids become rulers they live there for like 20 something years they grow up which is yeah wild. they like fully grow up and everything uh and then at some point they find themselves back at the woods that they originally came into from when they first entered they follow the woods out go through the wardrobe or they find the back of the wardrobe go through it and in the process they return back to the exact moment that they went into the wardrobe they're back to being kids Whew, time space is weird yeah. man yeah so that's basically the line the witch in the wardrobe uh <laughs> lord of the rings uh there's a ring of power uh people want it it finds its way to a hobbit uh the hobbit's name is frodo he has to go to mount doom to 
Go throw it in. All of the Lots evil of in the world is powered by this ring. That's important. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Okay. It's basically like, like a mission to destroy all evil is what they're going on. Great. Yeah. I hope he does it. Yeah. It's like all all evil, the, the remaining power of all that is evil in the world is contained in this ring. And it's trying to find its way back to uh, back to Sauron so that Sauron <laughs> can reform and fight back against the good. He's the eyeball, uh, right? Yeah. The okay. eye yeah. Of, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Is there more to him or has is he strictly an eye? Or like is, <laughs> no, when he gets the ring, he gets to be the rest of him. Like yeah, yeah. so you know how Gandalf uh when he dies when fighting the Balrog? Mm-hmm. He, Spoiler alert, but yeah. Yeah. There's a moment in there where uh he experiences like this white nothingness and that's kind of like the equivalent to what is happening to Sauron except it's happening to Gandalf much faster. Mm-hmm. Um Basically, Gandalf gets put into this place where he can like recharge. Um, it's where, where it's, it's like, where uh, Harry Potter met with Dumbledore that one yeah, time. Basically, yeah. Um, <laughs> All wizards have one. You just got to get on board. Yeah, the recharge place. Uh, yeah. So, and he ends up uh, becoming like a much more powerful version of who he used to be, um, and. And That's he gets bleached. That's why it becomes yeah. Gandalf the white. His gray robes become white. His hair goes from gray to white. Um, <laughs> and he becomes stronger. Is that the Clorox uh, dimension? <laughs> Where did it is? Yeah. 42 bleach. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens Stunning to Stunning white. <laughs> <laughs> essentially uh that's what's happening to sauron uh except sauron can't like fully finish recharging unless he has his ring oh yeah that makes sense now yep uh and so the whole idea is frodo and his friends they all have to go to mount doom which is where sauron lives and that's where everything that's where the ring was forged because the ring can only be forged by the fires of the mountain that it was created in mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. They have to go, they do it, they throw it in, and then all is good. A little bit simpler on the Lord of the Rings side, which is funny considering how much more complex the actual events are than what happens in <laughs> there's so the, many the Witch and Wardrobe. In Lord of the Rings. Like you're talking about the there really are the Balrogs, um, and I know there's orcs and Well, the the thing is a lot of it comes down to like there was there's one good guy, one bad guy, mm-hmm. and then a bunch of like branches off from that. <laughs> Here's some okay guys. <laughs> Because yeah, Sar- Sauron isn't even like the the biggest bad guy in the universe, huh? Yeah, um, I, I can't remember uh, the name of the the guy above him. Uh, <laughs> Is it but... an even an even bigger eye? He has a butthole. Yeah. Oh, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. The third eye. A giant butthole. <laughs> <laughs> the whispering eye of evil. <laughs> disgusting uh, <laughs> educational huh yeah uh so anyways so they they both are famous for particularly creating these two series of novels um however c.s lewis as we kind of dove into was he he spent a lot more of his time focusing on um creating works that focused on uh christian apologetics so christian apologetics is basically like the the side where you argue for christianity um where you you create arguments against why christianity would be false and then you try and disprove them uh in particular a lot of this uh a lot of these um fuck 
a lot of these uh, arguments were done in a series of books in particular called uh, the, the screw tape letters. I've heard uh, of this. These, yeah, these are letters that he wrote uh, to other people who were asking him quite different questions about Christianity and him doing his best job to try and answer them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this stemmed from his previous experience as a uh, atheist. So it was different questions that he had asked himself and then was able to find the answers through the Bible for. Um, hmm. A lot of it is just kind of taking like little fra- like phrases and passages from the Bible and creating arguments on top of those using logic. Interesting. Sounds like some shit I'd do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Why not? Yeah. Um, but yeah. So when we compare the two of these guys, um, C.S. Lewis was much more well known for his religious writing and his allegories, um, where Tolkien was much more well known for creating um worlds focused on large history, large amounts of history and mythos. Um, In particular, one of the things that Tolkien really focused on was he, he noticed that like lots of different cultures had very extensive uh, mythos is based upon their own histories. Whereas England in particular didn't really have that. Um, The reason kind of going back to when the, uh, the Roman Empire kind of came through and um, kind of eradicated all of their like native people, essentially uh, completely eradicated their cultures at the very least. Mm. Uh, any sort of longstanding like mythos that would have been there was completely wiped out. Right there. A lot since a lot of it was like told orally, we don't really have much history for what happened there. Uh, and so Tolkien kind of set out for like a mission on himself was to kind of create what he in his mind would be his own mythos for England. So if we go back and we think of like the Egyptian gods mm-hmm. uh, and like the like the Pharaoh, the stories of pharaohs becoming like gods in and of themselves and then their children or like we think about like the Greek gods, the stories of Hercules. Um, that's what he wanted to set out and create for England. Hmm. Uh, and he did this borrowing very heavily from his own knowledge and experience with previous histories and mythologies in particular um one of his biggest inspirations was um oh god i'm forgetting the name of it um it is one of the oldest classical forms of mythological literature and now i'm forgetting the name of it homer's the um, that's okay you'll find it <laughs> Not but, the Odyssey. No, it's more of like a Nor- Nordic based. Nordic. Um, it was almost more of like Saxon. Yeah, that's that's where you get the the whole name of Anglo-Saxon. Beowulf. 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 No Beowulf. Beowulf. The yeah. story of Beowulf. Yes. Most of it was based very heavily on his own experience with reading Beowulf. Um, hmm. Yeah. And one, one of the things that at the time was really hard to come by was having the ability to like for the average person to be able to read those sorts of stories. Beowulf was translated very, very sparsely at the time. Uh, and it was very hard to kind of get a copy of it, it that your average person could read. Um, and so Tolkien took it upon himself to create before ever writing even his first book, um, creating a incredibly rich and storied mythos and history for the world of middle earth. Um, like in, 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 in the actual like writing of it, like Middle Earth in is in essence within this overarching world that it takes place on would be the equivalent of 
Great Britain. The middle no of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> On a standard map, that is like the middle. So that makes sense. Yeah. Ish. Which is funny because if a cartographer had positioned it at all different than in Lord of the Rings, they could have been traveling through like a bit to the right earth or a bit to the left <laughs> earth. Oh, yeah. It is kind of the middle because uh, Greenwich, that's like where the latitude begins, right? I think. Something like latitude. that. What I think is important to note, especially for you, Nick, is that all the shit was happening before Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so like this mm-hmm. is the shit that Dungeons and Dragons is based off of yeah it's like these stories um so when you're like dungeons and dragons where'd that come from it came from the works of these writers and some of the stuff that is present in their writing immediately translated to the first edition of DD because they wanted to live out the adventures that they had read about in stuff like lord of the rings hmm yeah that all makes sense now Mm mm-hmm wow when you think of DD. And more importantly, our upcoming campaign for Project Icosa, just remember, it's basically Lord of the Rings. Just your own little version of it. Yeah, I'll have to go watch Lord of the Rings eventually. (laughs) Again, because I forgot Like like Alex said, um, first edition D&D, like very heavily borrowed from... To the point uh, where they got sued. Yeah, one, (laughs) one thing that is very well known about the Tolkien estate, they're very stingy Mm -hmm. with giving property rights out. Um, so like the first edition and you need two examples in particular, uh, you'll notice that tree ants, right? Yep. There there's, they used to be called ants, like the ants in Lord of the Rings, tree people. Now in D and D they're called tree ants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tree ants. Um, hmm. so instead of E N T S, it's now T R E N T S. They could just call them Trent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's Trent. <laughs> um, and then also like halfling. That's those uh, used to be called hobbits. Hobbits, yep. What? No way. Yeah, but then yeah. they got sued, so they were like, "We'll make them halflings." Yeah, <laughs> they're short. They got furry feet. It's the same thing. Well, Damn and it. even in like Tolkien's works, they're referred to as halflings a lot, but usually it's just used as kind of like a descriptor of like a person half the size of a regular person. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that what it means? Yeah, I thought it was like half, half small. What do you call the uh, dwarf or something like that? And you mix it with a human, it's a half? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just being Your <laughs> math, you didn't even finish the statements that you were making for me to help you suss out what you were trying to get at. So <laughs> that's probably sm- not is going to be my answer. Okay, got it. There probably is, not. That's that's all it is, just half the size of a normal human. Yeah. 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 Okay. They have the same proportions of a normal human, um, or a, rather a, a healthy, fully grown human. But they are, uh, yeah, their proportions are exactly halved. Okay. Yeah. That that makes a lot more sense, too. Yeah. So Lord of the Rings and Lion, Lodger, and the Wardrobe, two incredibly important works And both somehow fiction. connected to D&D, which is something I just learned today. So, I mean, we are educational, right, guys? I mean, the thing is, D&D is every fantasy ever. Yeah. yeah. It's like, That's why we so easily gave you guns in our upcoming <laughs> campaign. <laughs> like, yeah, he has a sidearm. Why not? <laughs> yeah. the, the beauty of D&D is that it can be whatever you want it to be. But the beauty of these books was that you got to travel on the adventure with the characters 
in mm-hmm. the books. And that's what inspired people to want to play D&D because they would finish Lord of the Rings and then they would be like, I am not done yet. I <laughs> want to keep going. Yeah. Huh. It's it's kind of like I want to be a character on in Middle Earth. Yeah. I want I like a party of humans, elves, dwarfs, wizards and hobbits. Mm-hmm. I want some of that action. And then, yeah, and that's where like a lot of the um, a lot of the classical like archetypes come from of characters. You've got like the ranger is kind of like how Aragorn is Mm -hmm. uh, a tracker who moves through the woods. Um, You got like wizard, obviously Gandalf. Um, (laughs) I know what a wizard is. (laughs) Yeah. And then you got like fighter, which is like um, Legolas or Gimli, just two different flavors of it. (laughs) I mean, you got dwarves, too, you know. that famous line and my axe you know like (laughs) that's that's huge D &D energy oh yeah (laughs) um but yeah so they they both kind of used each other as just writing backboards for everything that they did uh it turned out that they were actually some of each other's biggest critics um tolkien in particular really didn't enjoy uh c.s lewis C.S. Lewis is like penchant for fitting allegories into his story and basing his stories off of allegories and <laughs> cr- kind of creating that structure before he even began uh, as he felt like it hampered his creativity so much. Um, imagine imagine uh, instead of like getting a puzzle and having like a million different combinations of things, images that you can create without an actual like base image um, compared to how we traditionally solve puzzles. We have a base image that we want to put together and it has to fit in this exact way. That's kind of like what working with an allegory is like. Um, Yeah. Tolkien much preferred the experience of just kind of creating the world from the ground up and then building stories on top of that. Um, It's like riding with training wheels. Yeah. In particular, (laughs) Tolkien was uh, very focused on his books being kind of like a personal hobby more than anything. Uh, And so he really wrote his books for himself. Hmm. Uh, In particular, uh, funnily enough, between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, as many people would know, The Hobbit is kind of like the prequel to The Lord of the Rings. It's Mm -hmm. the story about how Bilbo, Frodo's uncle, gets the one ring. Um, however, in the Hobbit, there's never any mention of that ring being the one ring. Uh, the whole story kind of goes by, it happens on middle earth, but it's not anything that really is like, it's meant to be more of a children's novel, kind of similar to the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. They hmm. both kind of fit into that same category of books. Um, however, it came to a point in time where the Hobbit became extremely popular and publishers were clamoring to get Tolkien to write a sequel Tolkien didn't want to write a sequel. He wanted to <laughs> write about more in-depth stuff about Middle Earth. He wanted to write stuff more like the Silmarillion, which is basically a historic encyclopedia of his made-up world. Um, Jeez. Which is what Tolkien. all the nerds out there wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, imagine wanting like an Old Testament of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> That's basically what the Silmarillion is. Can I step in here and say that's a bit excessive <laughs> for the average reader? <laughs> well, because the thing is, is like, like I said, for Tolkien, the writing wasn't for anyone in particular. 
He was just, that was just like himself. he wanted to write stories he liked about his world that he made. That's because it was a hobby. He wasn't doing it to yeah. make money, so he didn't feel like he needed to fulfill the market cap that was left Ooh, for him. Right. He just wanted to write what he wanted to write, and what he wanted to write was an encyclopedia of his made-up world. <laughs> yeah, except no publisher was going to be like, no. Like, no publisher's going to be like, yeah, like, we we want more of, we want some of that. Like, everyone's going <laughs> to really enjoy that. No, everyone loved The Hobbit, so like, make more Hobbit. Make more Hobbit, so, idiot. That's basically what they said. Yeah. So <laughs> what Tolkien. Yeah. Tolkien was like, all right, cool. I got you. He trashed it, didn't he? He didn't trash it. He basically took every single bit of the Hobbit and made it fit into this grand universe that he created. So that oh. it forced it to expand upon the heavier elements of it. Incredible. Uh, in particular, by tying the ring, the magic ring that Bilbo found to being the one ring of power, you are now branching into uh, a world of these cosmic forces fighting against each other. Um, you have the good, ver- like the general good versus the general evil. So it's like, you whoopsie, have to- we inspired you to write the greatest fantasy story of all time. Yeah, it's like, whoops. <laughs> it's basically Tolkien giving like a giant middle finger to publishers. Like, I'm going to write my damn story about my fantastic world. But then it was accidentally kind of the best thing he ever did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the publishers were like, exactly. oh, no, you got us. <laughs> That's, That's wild, yeah. man. Yeah. I learned recently, and this is kind of an adjacent point, but um, uh, have you guys read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you know we that there was a sequel? To. I'll say I'll say that much. Do you know there was a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird? Is it called yes. To Mock a Killing Bird? To Mock a Killing Bird? <laughs> you want to give that another go, my man? No, nah, I'm good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Um, Is it called? And two? there, there was a uh, there was a sequel called Ghost Set a Watchman. Mm-hmm. Um. And what's funny about the sequel is that it sucked. <laughs> it was Probably like, I hasn't heard of it. Yeah. It was like one of the, it was okay. So it was released in 2015, which so that's is a pretty big gap in between the books, which is wild. Right. Yeah. Um, but it was forced out and there's like a huge conspiracy about it where people believe that, Harper Lee was basically in a nursing home and like the publishers were like, you have to make another book. Everybody wants another book before you die. You've got to make another book. And she like didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they went through her stuff and found like what they thought was maybe a first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. And it would set all of the characters in the future at much older ages. And they went ahead and published it and called it, you know, call you a watchman or whatever um and like she couldn't do anything about it publishers are assholes is what i'm getting at wow when you make something great and like a huge stepping stone for the literary arts publishers will absolutely milk you to death so the fact that i guess he was able to write the hobbit and then turn around and write like the second one and he still got what he wanted out of it. And it was still a hugely successful book. When I know about the whole like thing that happened with to kill a mockingbird is huge. Hmm. Kind of puts it in perspective. Crazy. When did the first, when did to kill a mockingbird come out? That was like the thirties, wasn't it? No, 
I don't think so. It was a while back. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> it was a while back. It was 1960. Okay, so that's like, what, a 50-year gap in between the books? Clearly, she wasn't going to make a sequel. Yeah, and that wasn't her plan. You can't make a, a sequel 50 years after the point, and then it's like, oh, cool, I guess. Thanks. <laughs> guess I'll read it. I guess I'll be forced to read it in high school. I don't know. <laughs> so... In particular, so now we've we've established that like these two authors are kind of at the top of their game. Oh yeah, C.S. Lewis creating like the whole series around Narnia, Tolkien creating the whole series around uh, Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it turned out that a lot of these conversations they would have would always be happening at the same place, and there's a place in Oxford that is known for being their typical gathering spot. Uh, this being the Eagle and the Child pub in Oxford, England. Oh, well, that's uh, lovely. Yeah, and it's still a pub that you can go to today. Uh, <laughs> Typical English And they fashion. have a little glassed-off table, and their drinks are still there. And this, the half-smoked cigarette no, still actually, is smoking. I, I think you can go sit your butt in the same spot that Tolkien or uh, Lewis's butts touched. Weird. That's cool, yeah. I guess. I don't it's know. like my butt's <laughs> touching their butt. <laughs> I have a point. <laughs> Down to the pub. <laughs> but frequently, a lot of the times, these meetings, they it wasn't just the two of them. It was also some of their other fellow literature uh, friends from the college or previous students or even like their own kids. Uh, oh. And they ended up forming a group that became very well known called the Inklings. Uh, well, that's just lovely. A whole, a whole bunch of friends <laughs> who just came together to talk about. Uh, fiction and writing and just having fun while doing it and came to argue with each other um that's awesome yeah and it's through those conversations is where tolkien actually converted c.s lewis to becoming a christian again Um, wow it's over these conversations while talking about their own works of literature and how they tied back into uh their own shared experiences where these conversations would get brought up Hmm. um And the thing that's crazy about it is that in order for Tolkien to have convinced C.S. Lewis to become a Christian again, he had to have made some really damn good points. It's a hard because it's a hard battle to fight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, well, C.S. Lewis is one of the most like skeptical motherfuckers on the planet. (laughs) Um, Like he he going back to even like like you you would know like a literature kid like any any kid who grows up just loving literature and having that be something that they know they want to make their career there's some well-read motherfuckers mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they read too much <laughs> yeah and you get to like c.s lewis even had like particular people that he pointed to who made like his favorite and strongest arguments for atheism mm-hmm. um I was like, I know, like, I haven't done research like that. I don't, I don't care enough to go <laughs> read like historic literature for or against religion. Um, well, I mean, you know, there's a good reason to do that, especially when you're, you know, interested in things like that, because learning the other side's point of views will either one change your point of view, um, or two, it will tell you exactly what they're going to argue so you can just turn right back around and be like but what about this um in either way you're getting something out of those conversations or you know those pieces of literature and things like that it's important when you're a writer to see from all perspectives because if you miss a perspective then you're not giving 
a truthful and full allocation to what you're writing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I respect well him a lot more learning that from you, Michael. Yeah. Honestly, like both him and Tolkien are very res- like uh, apart from them just being like, you know, these almost near mythological people when it comes <laughs> to fantasy writing and just the works that they've put out into the world. Uh, once you go back and look through their own life experiences and who they were as people that you you kind of come to understand who they actually were and you respect them a lot more for the people that they were. Um, not just the works that they put out. Yeah. And that's that's honestly like one of my favorite parts of reading is not just reading the stories that people put out, but learning about the authors who put them out in the world. Uh, One thing in particular that I learned a lot, especially after reading the Lord of the Rings for the first few times was learning about how Tolkien in particular was really fond of using a strategy called Uh, or not it was all about like telling the story from the perspective of the least knowledgeable character in that given situation huge Um, Hmm. especially when we're talking about like a world that was full of just tons and tons of information where things are constantly being spat at you the whole time how do you communicate that in a way that never actually removes the the reader from being engrossed in this fantastical world so oftentimes we're met with uh lots of cliches like uh amnesia or just having blank slate characters that somehow have lived their whole lives in these fantastical worlds but yet know nothing about them um a good example of this is in one of my favorite games of all time legend of zelda breath in the wild hey (laughs) You wake up with as Link with no memories of the world before. Um, and so everything has to be slowly drip fed into you. And that's how you kind of learn about the world. Which um, I actually quite enjoy. It's one of those things like if it's done really well, it can be very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's never one of those things where it's like it makes you feel like engrossed in the world, especially when it comes to like a video game where it's like, oh, Link, you have bombs now hold down b to, <laughs> and it's just like all right hey, cool, Link, i get it i'm playing a video game um bombs. <laughs> uh, but then you look at it in the from the story of like the lord of the rings where it's like all of these characters that are going through this they're all like minimum in their like 40s and 50s they've lived almost an entire lifetime in this world so each one of them has so much knowledge so how do you combat that notion of like needing to like needing to explain things to the reader about this world you've created. Well, you create a character who knows a lot about one thing in particular. In this case, it's Frodo. He knows a lot about being a hobbit, what it's like in Hobbiton and what it's like in the Shire. And that's what he knows best. And so starts it off while giving like almost like an encyclopedic reading of the hobbits and the shire but then as soon as the adventure starts frodo doesn't know anything about what's happening out in the world or where things come from so everything needs to be fed into him there's even cases where frodo isn't even actually in the story uh, of what's currently happening and so tolkien pivots to the reading happening from the viewpoint of a completely different character just whichever one would have the least knowledge in that situation Mm. uh 
in particular, there's one case where he does violate this, though. And this is how he really drives it home that you are in like a living and breathing world. And you you just kind of understand that these characters know a lot more about this than you do. Uh, at the very beginning of the two towers, uh, pretty much the entire fellowship um, gets split. You got Frodo and Sam who go and do their own thing. They leave the group because Frodo doesn't want to tempt anyone uh, who would might want to steal the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got Marianne Pippin captured by a bunch of orcs getting taken back to um, not to Mordor um, orc to the place where Sauron Saruman lives. Oh, no, uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Isengard getting they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got the other crew. You got Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli. Uh, and they're just kind of left like, all right, I guess we got to go find our friends. Let's go get Merry and Pippin. Um, <laughs> but it's at this moment that the story takes place from Aragorn's point of view, probably one of the most knowledgeable people in this story. And it's during this time that uh, the thoughts that are going through Aragorn's head are about are they reference things that we have no clue about that are never, ever mentioned in the story. Um like he'll just say like, oh, those trees grew faster than the the queen of of this one place. And you're like, <laughs> who the who of where of where town? And it's like, I don't know. Sure. Not gonna explain it. Got it, Aragorn. And Thanks. It's just one of those things where it's like Aragorn knows more about this world than you do. Hmm. <laughs> and he like because Aragorn wouldn't think like, oh, the queen of this place, which is where this happens, and like they're known for their exports of this and all yeah. that. It's like <laughs> you wouldn't think like that. So Tolkien doesn't write that. Um, and it just leaves little sprinkles within the world of like things that are mentioned, but never explained, um, kind of taking the whole point of view of just like, all right, cool. Like you are embodying this character and just whatever they are thinking and feeling right now. Uh, and it's your job to put any pieces that you don't know together. Hmm. One of the things that kind of makes that even more interesting is if you look back at the books, um, the entirety of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are written from just a few characters perspectives. What I mean by that is, is at the very beginning of Lord of the Rings, uh, Bilbo is finishing writing his story, which covers all the events of the Hobbit. Uh, so essentially the Hobbit is written from Bilbo's perspective. Cover to cover. You get to from cover to cover, you get to the Lord of the Rings Bilbo is finishing writing his story. Mm -hmm. Eventually Frodo picks up where Bilbo left off to continue telling the tale of the ring, which he then hands off at the end of the series to Sam and Sam puts the closing bit on it. That whole entirety of the Hobbit and the Lord of Rings is essentially written by three characters from other characters point of views within the story. Hmm. That's an important point. And you just kind of reminded me of, uh, how how a good RPG game is created because mm-hmm. you can talk to a lot of people and, you know, like, let's say Fallout New Vegas, they know a lot about their immediate surroundings, but do they know about like the Deathclaw cave? Probably not. So yeah. everybody knows something. Nobody knows everything. And I think that's an important yeah. point to kind of hit on again. Yeah. But that's one of the things that is oftentimes like so disenchanting when it comes to RPGs. It's yeah. like well, for Fallout 3 in particular, like I remember <laughs> getting to uh Megaton yep. and like you would imagine a place with a 
nuclear bomb at the center of it. A lot of people in the wasteland would know of that place. Yeah. They get there and uh, nobody bats an eye at you just being like, Megaton, what's that? Like, And then they go into like the history of Megaton and their role there. And it's just like, all right, I get it. I don't know anything about this world, but like the, I feel like like if the person's not surprised by the fact that you don't know anything. Yeah. Then it can be really like it can take you out of it um, a little bit. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that I think like a lot of writers could stand to pull from Tolkien's kind of tool bag, mm-hmm. like write your stories as if it is a real world. <laughs> yeah. Just don't <laughs> not like your drip. Yeah. Not like you're drip feeding. uh information into onto this blank slate like you gotta like treat like if if your person truly doesn't know anything treat them as if you would a normal person who like wouldn't know like president like biden is the president or um doesn't know anything like imagine like a 35 year old who like is from like middle America kind of coming up to one of us and just be like, yeah, what's going on? Uh, like, are we like, <laughs> under a is, rock? The cold, is the cold war still happening? Um, Some would argue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> like, well, like what happened? Like what, what's been going on? Like who's who? Like, and you just be like, your first thought is where have you been for the last 30 years? <laughs> <laughs> and no one no one in stories like really ever asked that it's just like all right cool yeah i guess you don't know anything i'll explain it to you uh, it's like explain it like i'm five to yeah. like a, an adult person so it all started back in world war ii <laughs> right yeah yeah, yeah. Like and, and i think that kind of goes back to like why some of my favorite like video game stories are like the dark souls games or like bloodborne or elden ring it's these stories don't really treat you as this like completely unknowing person Mm -hmm. because like a lot of the times these stories aren't told to you the stories are found through excerpts of written on like item descriptions where it makes references to things that aren't explained that you have to go find another weapon that does explain it so that you can fit the pieces together to actually fill the gaps of the whole story it's making a puzzle as opposed to viewing a picture, I guess. Yeah. If exactly. you want to get metaphorical about it. Yeah. And the thing that makes puzzles great for people who enjoy puzzles uh, is <laughs> actually putting the pieces together yourself yeah. and creating that artwork that you get at the end. Mm-hmm. Chloe also hates puzzles, if I can throw that in. I mean, I would um, do them, but come on. <laughs> what, I, what I want to kind of harper back to for a moment, if I may, uh, and kind of throw it back to D&D because that's how I personally attach to these stories. Yeah. What is so incredible about specifically DMing uh, a campaign is that, and Nick, this is more insight for you because I'm sure Michael understands completely. Oh, I can roll an insight check. No, thank you. Oh. <laughs> uh, but the thing about being a DM is you are writing a story just as, you know, Token did. Uh, but... You're, you don't get to control the characters or what they do. So you build the world. And like Michael said, you need to write your story as though you were someone living in that world. You're kind of forced to because your players, the characters in your story that you're writing, are physically living in that world. Yeah, They are affecting the world. They are making changes in the world. They are creating a world. And that's what's so cool about DMing is anybody who thinks that they can write out a campaign and run it from start to finish is a psychotic person <laughs> because once the players get in there, whatever plans you had are gone. But that is what makes 
those stories when you're sitting at a table playing D&D so interesting is the fact that the world is physically alive in front of you and the story is a collaborative art between people who care about each other. Hmm. So like the thing about D&D that's so crazy is that it is Lord of the Rings, but you're on adventure with your friends. Mm hmm. It's some of the some of the best writing comes out of D and D. Oh, absolutely! Um, like even thinking about it, like the hard part with being a, one of the hardest parts about being DM is knowing like when to stop. Like you can take like a, a Tolkien like level of like detail to your world and explain every little beaten bitten piece before your players ever touch it. Um, but is is your adventuring party ever going to come across the glade of satyrs that exists in this far off corner of the world that they are hundreds of miles from maybe but if there's like a hundred other things that they could go interact with probably not yeah so a lot of the times building D stories and worlds for these campaigns is placing enough building out the world before your players get there but from an idea of where your players are currently at. Mm -hmm. Like, um, like if your players are all centered around this one city and that's where everything starts, start building the world from that city out, mm -hmm. start from there. Mm -hmm. And then as everything kind of progresses and waterfalls and all of these like other triggering events happen and create these other events that are happening in other places, then you can start building the full world while still kind of keeping in mind what your adventuring party is currently doing. One of some of my favorite stories in D and D are take place in worlds that, uh, where things are happening that the players don't even know about, um, where it's like you have things happening in far off in like a far off country that is like happening as your adventuring party is progressing. Maybe they go over and maybe something from their effects eventually affects the adventure that they're going on. But there could be like 30 sessions that go by where nothing from there ever even happens. But one domino can knock over the other dominoes that eventually culminates in something major happening for your characters that they didn't even know could possibly happen. That is especially juicy when you check off gun your characters. Oh, yeah. Where it's like in the first session, you met this guy. And now 30 sessions later, you realize what meeting this guy meant. Or some of my favorite parts of, is like you have that guy, but your players do this thing to him or have this experience with him, which then triggers this other thing that he decides to do. And then that has its own domino effects that eventually culminate in like this person that you might not have even known becoming a major player in the world. <sighs> But it can all be traced back to like, oh, yeah, it's because you decided to donate some money to this beggar on the side of the street. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Lord deep. of the Rings and D&D, <laughs> their stories go hand in hand, mostly in the case of they're about friends gathering and having a good time together and going on adventures. That's what it's yeah. all about. Yep. Well, how about that? Which can all be which can all be traced back to the friendship between C.S. Lewis and uh jrr tolkien holy shit we wrapped it up in a nice little bow well done mike we did it yeah we with did a it. single <laughs> statement you killed it wow <laughs> incredible you got anything else for us mike or is that all you got no that's about it <laughs> all right well i got a quick this coming from you from you from your boy in the past john kincaid of big chicken bits coming at you Woo! right now 
<laughs> and welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed that small music interlude. This week, we once again have John from Big Chicken Bits back to do our quick this this week. Hello. Oh, what you got for us, John? You got oh, something ready? I do have something ready. I always have well, something on the back burner that's ready to go on the front uh, burner whenever I need fine. it. Yeah, something like yeah. that. <laughs> All right. Does someone have a timer to pull up? How about I give you 20 minutes? I would love that. How about Hmm. How about I give you a go? <laughs> so there are many things that are special to me. In the episode I just uh, did last week, it was Zelda. But there's also another game that's very near and dear to my heart. One that tugs at nostalgia while still being something that is fun to revisit. It's fresh. It's creative. And that is Paper Mario the thousand year door Ooh. on the nintendo gamecube this game Ooh. does something that's very unique to the series and that there are fresh mario characters there are new weird places that you visit there's like death there's just death sometimes and there's also moments where you step on someone's contact lens and then she gets pissed off and you have to buy a contact lens in a Mario game. It's bizarre. It's grotesque. There may or may not be a noose in the home area of the of Rugeport, the town, the main town that you'll be visiting. And there's just goofy characters that you'll be interacting throughout the game. Luigi while you're having this crazy adventure is having a crazy adventure of his own that you will hear from him and how heroic he's being. But then his partner characters will be saying, no, this guy's a coward and he's weak. We all hate Luigi <laughs> at the core of this game though, is very uh, accessible RPG combat, fun exploration, lots of badges to power you up a hammer that is big and fun to swing around and get coin blocks there's some classic mario to it but there's also some things that we may never see in a mario game mainline or otherwise ever again because nintendo is changing how they view that character in that series we are seeing things that are just strange somewhat cryptic especially if you're a kid who is growing up with a gamecube and you're trying to figure out this guy is like a shadow version of me, but now I'm the shadow version and everyone thinks I'm the fraud. This game goes in weird, screwy, oddball directions, but it'll keep you guessing throughout the experience. But it's still grounded in that fantastical Mario lore, and it's still grounded by some really fun, engaging turn-based combat that the Paper Mario series was known for. Maybe not anymore, but it makes it something that kind of just came out at the right time, at the right place. Um, at the end of the game, you go to the moon. <laughs> Enough said, really. I could end it there. This is only a paper moon. <laughs> it's Oh, and that's another thing, the paper aspect. So this is the second game in the series, and it's not just paper for a fun art style. It's also paper because it's fun to play around with that in terms of gameplay, in terms of how the world is designed. You'll flip a switch and a bridge will just tear from another corner of a page, and now it's accessible to you. So they really play up the paper 
atmosphere in this game it's not like your kind of standard mushroom kingdom affair it's something completely different Hmm. maybe my most fond memory of it and one that i think about whenever i think about revisiting this game are the optional dungeons that you can go into there's a hundred layers of a fight dungeon that ends in a climactic battle with a giant dragon in the sewers and it's pretty tough for a kid and still tough as an adult it's something that is pretty fresh for the series and again we haven't seen it since i have played every single paper mario game since then some are not as great some are not as uh fantastical full of whimsy or you know full of that same kind of grimy darkness that you get from thousand year door uh, some of them still kind of scratch that itch, but not quite. There's just too many standout moments in Thousand Year Door. And it's not just me who thinks this. The gaming community at large still reflects on this game very fondly to the point where whenever a Paper Mario game is announced, people are upset that this isn't like Thousand Year Door. This is something different. We may never get a game like this in this series ever again. There are some games that try to pick up the slack, Bug Fables being one of them, and it does a pretty good job, but Thousand Year Door is something that truly stands the test of time. Hey, way to watch your nice. time, buddy. That was exactly five minutes. Well done. <laughs> too good at this, I may you know? have been rambling at some point. <laughs> there were dramatic pauses that I think were in there for the purpose of timing, but no, I still it, appreciated those, it. Those moments needed that pause to really just drive the statement you to reminisce on it. No, I totally get it. <laughs> Thank you for coming on uh, to do our quick this this week. I know it's kind of crazy to ask people to jump back on our show for a five minute bit, but we appreciate it nonetheless. And to reward mm-hmm. you, I will once again allow you and nick to pitch big chicken bits nick so how you do it oh, this time hey do you guys want to this know- is wild because this is gonna happen no this happens after no we're good we're good mm-hmm. go ahead hey sorry i'm still messing with timeline time stuff you, you forget where you are time 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 <laughs> that happens every day on the big chicken there's bits not enough time podcast it's that's not true we don't actually time more but we do talk about chicken Sometimes we talk about a certain company that may or may not be uh, in charge of a lot of the poultry production um, in the United States of America, but... I've actually just decided that Big Chicken Bits is not under the Entertain This umbrella for reasons of legality. <laughs> I really think that... I really think you guys mentioning that company one too many times is going to cause some... It's going <laughs> to well, ruffle some feathers, if you would. We do talk about bits. We do talk about chicken. And one of our main goals is to get a cease and desist from a major manufacturer, <laughs> seller, distributor of chicken. So who that is, you'll just have to tune in who knows? to Big Chicken Bits... It's on Anchor. It's on Spotify. It's wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll find you. And it has no association with Entertain This or the Entertain This brand. (laughs) The The only common thread is that I happen to appear on both podcasts. I would I would love to like have a little page on our website that led to big chicken bits and like you guys could like link people there and like design like <laughs> fill up your none of Man. that is on the table because we don't need that legal pressure on us. <laughs> if that's what you want to do, do it. But not, try it, man. not 
us. We're out here trying. If if you have a friend that's a, an executive, I mean a um, a poultry executive. If you have a friend named um, Tyson. Yeah, if you have yeah. If you Mike know Mike Tyson, Tyson, bring him on the show. Let him know about our podcast. Make make him listen to it, <laughs> please. Well, you know. Big big chicken bits aren't the only thing we talk about here. There's a number of things that we've covered on Entertain This. And if you want to add to that growing list, you can throw us your suggestions. And there are a couple ways you can do that. Number one, you can go to our website, www.entertainthis.net. Scroll all the way to the bottom. There's a little questionnaire you can fill out. Send us our survey uh, answer there. Or you can just email us. We are entertainthispodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter. We're entertain underscore this you can find us on instagram we are entertain this podcast and on facebook we are podcast entertain this and until next week entertain us so we can entertain you and you can entertain this we'll see you guys next friday goodbye goodbye (laughs) bye this episode of Entertain This was written by Michael Savoya, with additional commentary from Alex Steele and Nick Mustakangas. Our showrunner and resident fact checker is Floyd Price. Our theme music is Rush Rubble by Aaron Spencer, with interstitial music by DJW. Tune in every Friday for new episodes, and thanks for listening.